Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases until the end of September. Download the Crypto.com app today. This is the fourth installment in the Why Bitcoin Now series, which takes a closer look at Bitcoin in the context of larger macroeconomic forces, such as the pandemic and geopolitical moves happening in crypto. My guests for today are Adam Back, the inventor of Hashcash and the co-founder and CEO of Blockstream, and David Shaw, the inventor of eCash and the co-founder and CEO of Elixir. Welcome, Adam and David. Hey, it's great to be here. Or nice to see you. Yeah, likewise. Good to be here. So just a quick note before we begin. I've been a little bit under the weather. I've managed to <laughs> to gather the fortitude to do this episode. Hopefully it will all turn out fine, but I just wanted people to know uh, that's what was happening while I was trying to prepare for this. All right. So let's start with the first question. How did you both become enamored with the idea of digital currency at a time when that was something that wasn't even really on the radar of anybody in the world and the internet wasn't even really a big thing. And why don't we start with you, David? Well, sure. Uh, yeah, so, uh, well, in uh, 1977, in the spring, I moved to Berkeley to start my PhD in computer science. And uh, I, uh, well, I was transferring. Actually, I had a Regents for Your Graduate Fellowship at UCLA, but I decided that Berkeley was a more my kind of place. So I moved to Berkeley. And I, you know, really focused on privacy and the uh, trying to foresee how the world would, the, the digital world would play out. And I realized that privacy was a key ingredient in that. And I started developing, you know, a few technologies to see where this would all go. And the first one I started with was actually voting. And which more or less immediately led to what's called mixed networks today. And that's something I published in 79 as my master's thesis and then appeared in CACM in, in 82, I think, but as pretty well uh, referenced uh, work. And many people have implemented this over the years. It was a, put it in the public domain. And uh, it's the only real way that's practical at all to create what's we call a large anonymity set, which is the figure of merit in any kind of privacy system, right? It's like, how many people are you actually anonymous among, assuming 
that the bad guys can see everything that everyone sends to everyone else. That's the threat model, you know, and we learned from Snowden now that that's the real threat model. Um, so uh, that was kind of where I started. I thought, yeah, this is really important. If the government can see who talks to who and when, uh, then you don't really have a basis for for being a participant in a democracy. This could be a kind of a chilling thing. And so then the next step to come to your question about money was, well, then I thought, well, great. So I can participate in this upcoming internet thing or this, you know, the future digital world. We didn't know exactly how it was going to play out in in the, in the late seventies, but uh, I'll need some way to pay things and, and, and be paid to do things. And uh, if, if, you know, that payment system allowed the linking of who's paying who to be recognized you know, by people listening in on the network, then it would undo all of the, the what we call traffic analysis protection, now called metadata shredding, the, the, the hiding of who talks to who in the messaging system would be uh, obviated, would be undone by learning who pays who, because then you would, you'd know anyway. So, I, th- I thought, well, we need a payment technology that will work in this privacy uh, protected metadata shredding sphere. And so that's when I, uh, in the, let's say in the early 80s, I, had, I invented eCash, which was a, uh, a privacy protecting uh, digital bearer instrument. And that's something that I don't think people have really recognized. It's, I mean, in some sense, you could call it Bitcoin zero because, but it was, it has certain advantages over Bitcoin in that, of course, there's very strong privacy that you couldn't break even with um, unlimited computing power. And then it also had the, the property that when you had this money, no one could take it away from you. So, that, you know, nowadays you could take, uh, you could change uh, things on the chain if you really want to. Sometimes it happens, but with eCash, there'd be no way to take money away from you because you would have these digital signatures on serial numbers that you chose at random, and no one would see them. Even if they had quantum computers or unlimited computing power, they couldn't figure out which serial numbers you chose at random and have the signatures on. So you would be protected uh, in the holding of your money. So it was a digital bearer instrument uh, that you know, no one had ever thought of anything like that, and yeah, and that was a really big deal. So that's how I that's how I came to it. Okay, yeah, let let's uh, we'll dive a little bit more into eCash in a moment. Um, Adam, what about you? How did you get into digital currency so early on, before anything like Bitcoin was on the scene? So I started a PhD uh, in 1991, and uh, I guess the year before that, I had a friend who's doing a master's degree. And uh, this is at University of Exeter. We had a distributed systems group with some parallel hardware. So, you know, lots of processors, high-speed interconnects. And it's a kind of interesting challenge to program those things. And that was the topic of my PhD, actually, initially, was more about distributed systems. So I came to know about the Byzantine and General's problems and things like that before other people who maybe heard about that topic first in the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency context. So in any case, my uh, friend there was um, trying to accelerate the RSA encryption algorithm on these parallel hardware because 
At the time, CPUs were a lot slower than they are now, and to in- even to encrypt messages was somewhat slow on a general desktop processor and that kind of thing. So I got interested in, I got to know the technology before the kind of, you know, the, uh, the very interesting balance of power change of being able to have end-to-end secure messaging that governments couldn't encrypt and so on. So it wasn't long after that that PGP came out, and PGP had that very interesting property. I think the internet itself brought a lot of um, kind of freedoms and more direct participation, for example, in media and blogging and conversations is less hierarchical. There was initially some government friction and adapting to the concept that, you know, while they could maybe influence a large media organization, it was very difficult to influence millions of independent voices with their own views on things. And, you know, of course, that's progressed a lot since, you know, the 80s and 90s. But from the interest in PGP, I joined the Cypherpunks list, which is basically a group of people interested in technology like that. So um, internet technology with some kind of privacy benefit or change in the balance of power. So the kind of things that Snowden came to blow the whistle on, people were suspicious of. And these were the kinds of people that were suspicious. You know, is, is the government really actually recording all this stuff? And there was a whole like a political battle about the banning of uh, encryption, actually, or the banning of export of encryption from some countries, or you know, discussion about countries banning encryption software that the uh, national security apparatus couldn't decrypt. And some of those things pop up even decades and decades later. So it's kind of disappointing that that's still ongoing. But I think my my view was that. We have in laws and regulations established rights, and it's a kind of natural balance in society that for you know respect and privacy and personal independence and so forth that you have various rights, but they become harder to enforce or eroded by the mechanisms of the internet. So those are things some of the things that David was talking about that you know actually to even hold on to the rights that you naturally assume and expect in the physical world. Some of those start to get eroded because ISPs are keeping logs initially for other, you know, for service reasons. But once they're recorded, then people start to ask for access to the logs, you know, different law enforcement and so on. So, so I got interested in uh, privacy technology and read, you know, spent much of the time when I should have been, you know, working on distributed systems, actually reading all kinds of uh, applied cryptography papers, including David Trump's, some of David Trump's papers. And, um, implemented some of them in cryptographic libraries and actually implemented a, an eCache library that implements uh, David's um, eCache protocol, the, the online version, not the more complicated cut and choose offline version, and also a related system uh, by Stefan Brands, uh, which is just another, another variety of that. So I implemented both of those systems in a library and you know, there was there was a great deal of interest in privacy technology, but all of the networks were operated by volunteers. So you know, the cost of the servers, the cost of the bandwidth was volunteer, and it was a big gap in the technology that there was no way to pay for anything. And as David said, you know, as soon as you whip out your credit card and and pay for something, now all the privacy has been undone and gone. So uh, clearly, electronic cash 
was needed. So there's a lot of excitement about David's company, Digicash, at the time, which, which was uh, deploying the technology that he talked about some, some decades after he first published the uh, blind signature paper. You know, people wanted to see that deployed in some way or other, and, and that was, uh, for a time, deployed in a kind of demo server. But it was, I think, Bitcoin, which came very much later, struck, you know, approached the problem from a different angle, which is it, it was more distributed but less private. And the reasons for the distribution or decentralization are sort of censorship resistance, survivability. You know, so it didn't depend for its viability on any any group of individuals or companies, right? It would just keep operating as a fabric. So there's no, not really any prospect of the internet disappearing because there are so many different service providers and operators. And so it is with Bitcoin that there are you know, so many different companies offering integration services and wallets and doing mining and providing various infrastructure services. So Bitcoin becomes much more of a fabric and so more survivable, but it's not as good from, um, from a privacy point of view. So you know, with my kind of interested in interest in applied cryptography, when I saw Bitcoin and, and started taking more of an interest in it, it struck me that you know now that it was here and it addressed sort of robust survivability, that maybe there would be some way to improve the privacy. And of course, there have been incremental improvements over time. But I proposed something called confidential transactions, which um, is a way to encrypt the values of the so so how many coins are being transferred, but still have it be publicly auditable. So it turns out you can do that using zero knowledge proofs, and you know the challenge is to make it compact and efficient. So uh, that's been implemented in sort of related systems. So like side chains to Bitcoin, so kind of modular layer twos to Bitcoin, and some other systems. And there and there are a variety of uh, uh, privacy technologies in surrounding. Uh, cryptocurrencies, which are, which are interesting, and I hope that you know, one day as the technology matures, Bitcoin itself will incorporate more strong privacy, either in a layer one or in a layer two. Um, so it's kind of, it came at it from a privacy technology perspective. I think Bitcoin adds one other dimension, which was not something I was focusing on before. I mean, I think that you know, in the in the early to mid '90s onwards, there are a lot of people interested to try and find a way to deploy electronic cash, either you know using Trom's protocols or other protocols or independently, and finding it difficult, like technically challenging, to do that. And so I was part of that kind of group of researchers, like Hal Finney and Nick Zabo and other people that were discussing those things. One thing that Bitcoin adds that wasn't, to my mind, the major concern at the time is a digital gold like aspect, right? That it, that it would have also some kind of monetary reform or return to a gold standard, but in a digital format, you know, we were looking at it from the point of view, we need electronic money with strong privacy and bearer properties. But if that would have been denominated in us dollars or, you know, some other stable large country currency, we'd have been very happy and, and felt that we'd uh, achieved the objective. So, Bitcoin adding that is a, is a new dimension and um, I think likely helped its uh, you know popularity and adoption as well. Yeah, super interesting points and we'll dive into some of these a bit more later. But one other thing I wanted to ask about those early days was, was there a sense at that time that 
uh, it was kind of like an active group of people that were all working on this? Or did it have this feeling more of people that were kind of loosely connected on the internet and then each of you were sort of tinkering on your own? Like, you know, I'm just trying to get a sense of the feeling during those days, whether or not it was something that felt like it was almost imminent or if it really felt like, well, all these people are trying different things, but, you know, it's probably kind of far off in the future. Let let me, maybe, maybe I could speak to that, Adam, because I think we're talking about two different timeframes here. Totally. Right. Adam's talking about the nineties. I'm talking about, you know, I invented all this stuff in the late seventies and published it in the early eighties. And, uh, I did another thing, which was, you know, really fundamental that, uh, opened up this whole discussion. Adam mentioned the crypto wars without calling them that, but that, you know, governments were in this mode of, you know, saying that you couldn't export cryptographic software or that you couldn't. In fact, they were putting secrecy orders on uh, researchers in the United States, uh, people I knew, uh, independently created ideas and the government would come to them. You can't talk about that. It's a national security. You know, you, they're going to put you in prison if you talked about it. Well, and, Adam, I, I mean, you have your famous T-shirt, the RSA T-shirt. Can you talk about that for a second? Because that yeah, it's means- it's related to what David just mentioned. Yeah, so well, I was living in in the UK at the time, and so the, I mean, you know, various countries had different export controls and regulations, but the US was the largest exporter of software. You know, the the nexus of a lot of internet software development, and so the fact that it's had this non-expert policy on cryptography was a concern. And it struck me as kind of silly because so I set about making a very small program that would nominally be unexportable. And it's, you know, it's like three lines of Perl code or something. So it's very small. And I made a t-shirt and sold some t-shirts and there are people did other things with it, you know, like got a tattoo or, you know, put it as a signature line on the email and so on. So, and I think there was a law professor who, there was a procedure where you could ask if your software was exportable. So there was a law professor who was trying to fight this export regulation through the U.S. courts, and he asked for approval to export this, you know, three lines of pearl, and they said he couldn't. And it's also very anachronous because there's the very strong U.S. Uh, free speech, and it, and it particularly applies to written, you know, to books. You shouldn't, you know, ban books and things like that. And so there were people that you know, put the PGP source code in books and freely exported them, but to do it electronically would have been illegal or something. So it struck me as kind of sort of silly, but at the same time serious, you know, it was hampering business and it was meaning that de facto a lot of software wasn't as secure as it could have been. So it was a way to sort of put some political commentary on it. Look, you know, here's the de minimis thing that they would apparently consider to be unexplorable. So anyway, so continue with your line of thought there, David. Well, but just to make clear for people, like you printed it on a T-shirt. And then so if people flew internationally with that T-shirt on, then they were breaking this law. Is that the case? I don't know. I mean, if you can export a book, can you export a T-shirt? It's a bit of a gray area, I guess. But at least it, it people thought it was an amusing kind of way to protest something that they were quite unhappy about. It was a serious thing, you know, because it was impeding Internet commerce, basically, because people didn't feel they could trust encryption and it was also pushing jobs away from the US you know now there were people in Europe writing cryptographic libraries 
because their US counterparts wouldn't be able to export them or, you know, international companies setting up offices in Europe to do applied cryptography implementations and things. So it was it was quite the inconvenience and it eventually got overturned, but not not before there were, you know, test cases and a lot of drama. So the uh, the you know, crypto wars as David called it. Yeah, that was a real thing in the in the nineties. And so, David, yeah, we interrupted your line of thought. What were you going to... Oh, well, I'd like to... Let's, let me just turn the big old heavy TV camera back to, you know, when this all was really in play. So as I was saying, uh, a number of my uh, colleagues and friends had secrecy order placed on them by the United States government, which made it a federal crime to uh, reveal what they were researching, even though they, had, they weren't drawing in any classified sources. So that's a doctrine that's sometimes referred to as born classified, which we have as an official policy in the United States when it relates to nuclear weapons technology. That makes a certain amount of sense to me, I guess. Uh, But, you know, to apply that to cryptography seemed uh, a bit out of range. And so actually, so I was a graduate student at Berkeley thinking about, you know, liberty in the digital world and uh, what it would be like, because, you know, it's a lot more kind of by stable, you know, because if you, everything's digital, you could spy on everything pretty easily, or I developed these technologies that would allow you to protect your privacy. So you, it could go sort of one of the, one of the two ways, but all the privacy technology was based on encryption and special kinds of encryption that I developed, you know, and, uh, uh, so I really pioneered a lot of that stuff, and I think that's what inspired the cypherpunk movement. I mean, that's what everyone says. But the other thing that I think really uh, is very significant is that this all could have gone a very different way because the the, the National Security Agency, which is our main cryptographic uh, authority in the United States, you know, for protecting secrets and breaking codes, uh, they uh, got a new director. And this fellow came in and he started writing letters to all the scientific associations like that, you know, the ACM and the IEEE, which are the main ones for uh, computer technology, telling them that they should not have conferences or even sessions at conferences that covered uh, cryptography because this was, you know, an illegal export and that they would you know, he was going to throw the full uh, force of the U.S. government uh, at them. And, uh, you know, the unbelievable uh, penalties would, would, would accrue to them because this was totally illegal. And with my perspective at how, how, uh, how important all this encryption would be to deciding which way the world would go and you know, being a relatively, I don't know, Berkeley young uh, guy uh, caught up in the whole atmosphere there and uh, everything, I thought there's only one thing to do, and that is to uh, organize a conference on cryptography, but to do it secretly, not to use the phone. So we, I did it all by in-person conversations and by, uh, and I mailed out invitations uh, to a bunch of, you know, Basically, a guy named Len Edelman was a researcher uh, from from the RSA uh, name R the, the A. He had a list of we got a printout in those days, you know. And me and my girlfriend sat in the apartment, you know, and we 
uh, cut those out and glued them onto these envelopes, you know, and we mailed these, these things out in the, in the, in the paper mail. And, um, so there was a, a conference and most people interested in the, in the field came to it. And it was, uh, in Santa Barbara. I stood up there on the stage and thanked everyone for showing up. And I announced that if they, you know, since they paid a hundred bucks or whatever it was, 80 bucks to, uh, for the registration fee that now they were, that was a, a membership fee in a new international association for cryptologic research. International scientific associations are protected by the United Nations. And so, you know, there was a bunch of people in the front row, uh, all, uh, who registered for the conference as private individuals, not affiliated with any institution, but they all happened to live in Laurel, Maryland, which if you know anything about the NSA, that's where they, they are. So, <laughs> and the, so all, when I said this, they just, you know, these people all turned green. It was, that was it. It was over. I said, okay, we're having our next event will be in uh, Udina, Italy. And here's Henry Becker. He's going to be the chairman of that. That'll be in the spring. And, you know, it was over. So, it, you know, the government tried to, to make cl- uh, cryptography born classified, and they they threatened these big organizations, and that scared them. You know, because those bureaucrats didn't have a lot, you know, of skin in the game. But I I felt it was just too important, so I risked spending the rest of my life in jail to set cryptography free, which I did, and I I'm very proud of it. And at that conference, I published the. Uh, the eCash paper, uh, and, um, you know, and that conference, that association, by the way, is very robust and exists to this day. It is the main, uh, by f- probably the only real organization in the field of cryptography. It publishes a journal through Spring of Verlag. All of its proceedings are published. It has a f- three annual conference, three conferences every year in different parts of the world, plus half a dozen workshops. So it's the the International Association for Cryptologic Research, it's called, and uh, it's it's it has enough money in the bank, you know, to where weather the pandemic. Even if it has to pay for conferences for like a year or two, if no one comes, it still it can afford that. So uh, we resisted like joining these other scientific associations. So it's maintained a very independent and robust uh, uh, position, and done a great deal to uh, you know facilitate and build up the the scientific community in the field. So this was yeah. a, a pivotal, pivotal thing. It's, it's so fascinating. I love that story. Uh, so in a moment, we're going to talk more about eCash as well as HashCash. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. How much in fees are you paying for your crypto purchases? Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases, which means you can buy crypto with a 0% fee. Apart from your crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping too. Get up to 10% back on Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and many more when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? On the Crypto.com app, buy gift cards and get up to 20% back from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Papa John's, and Domino's. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers till the end of September. Back to my conversation with David Shaw and Adam Back. So, David, you did allude to this briefly earlier. You created the eCash system, which had as its currency Cyberbucks. How did eCash work? And um, and you can also explain Digicash. 
Okay, well, that's a lot. That's, <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of a, a lot of stuff. But but if you come, to, if you go to charm.com, that, scroll down, there's projects, and one of them is the eCash project, and you can see there's a whole DigiCash museum there. And so you can see all about the history of it and pictures of the people and all this stuff. And you can see, uh, interestingly, the banners of the original Cyberbucks accepting shops on the Internet. And so there's a whole bunch yeah, of them. Can, do you want to list some of those for people? I don't really remember them off the top of my head, but you go there because you can click. If you hover over them, you know, if you're on a laptop, then you can uh, – it'll show the name. And if you click through, you can – see like uh, from the Wayback Machine what their homepage looked like. So you can see all these people selling interesting stuff. Uh, so the deal was if you put up a shop and accepted eCash, we would, I would give you a hundred cyber bucks. And there was, okay, it wasn't, wasn't a, you know, we just said, well, we're going to have a million. It was limited. So the idea of a limited issue was something that a lot of people had talked to me about, you know, because it's a, a lot of people feel that's very important to do. So we did that. And, and, uh, you know, it was a it was a, a a pretty successful thing, but I think Adam will recall this back in those days. You know, it wasn't that easy to install the client software and get it to work, and there were, everyone had different versions of different operating systems, and uh, it was computers were very slow for processing the you know all this, and um, you know we were using modems and all that back in those. Days. It was not uh, easy. It wasn't easy for us to uh, make it a seamless. Uh, you know, experience on your smartphone or something. It was, uh, it was if really something you had to want to do. So it was kind of hard to compete with credit cards and all that when, you know, as, as the internet just, you know, ex- accelerated. But what we did license and build for different banks, uh, also their own system. So the largest bank in Europe at that time was Deutsche Bank and I went over there and I talked to their board and they were all excited about it and they decided to back us. And, you know, people say DigiCash failed. Well, it's not really true. It was taken down because they were willing to invest, you know, quite a lot more money in it. And, and the, 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 the people who got control of the company didn't want that. They wanted to kill it. So it was a sad thing. But the, but Deutsche Bank was a very tough customer. You know, if you can imagine a German, bank, you know, the biggest bank in Europe, they had their data center was in an old bunker It was several stories underground. And they wanted every kind of backup and, you know, recovery and everything. So we had to build all this stuff for them. We satisfied them. But I think it's quite an achievement. So it was a very industrial thing, strength, e-cash banking system, if you will, uh, that attached to their, you know, what are called current accounts to their, uh, you know, a regular uh, consumer uh, bank accounts. And, uh, and there were shops that were accepting. And in those days, of course, it was before the euro, right? It was Deutschmarks. And so you could, you could use Deutsche Bank issued Deutschmarks and buy things online with, uh, and so we made all that for them was all Deutsche Bank branded. And then we had Mark Twain Bank in the US, which, uh, offered US dollars. And so they, they were an international currency bank. So they had some other, they could do various conversions. So that was great. And then we had Advanced Bank in Australia, which I think was like the number two or three bank at that time. Now it's been merged in. Uh, they were issuing it in Australian dollars. And uh, we had bunches of people wanting to use it and starting to use it in uh, various countries. And um, I mean, I think my congressional testimony in the U.S. is, you know, maybe noteworthy, but I also spoke to a bunch of other governments 
and visited many central banks around the world. And, uh, you know, I told people at that time, what I really told them was, you know, if your country would take the initiative and issue its money in e-cash, you could be the electronic commerce leader of, of the world. This would be a tremendous economic opportunity for your country. And that's what I was pitching when I had that oppor- uh, chance to, uh, to, to speak to those, because I was invited to a lot of central banks and, you know, Visa International and Citibank and all these. I was sitting there in the boardrooms and meeting the executives that come to visit me and, you know, all this stuff. So, I mean, there was a lot of interest in what we were doing. Uh, I have boxes of press clippings from those days because when I issued, when I announced the, you know, I did the first eCash payment, the first worldwide web conference from CERN to, to, uh, Amsterdam. And that's when, the, and, and, and then I wrote a little press release and this guy sent it out uh, from the company and it was, the New York Times picked it up and Wall Street, it was all over the global media in about 48 hours. And there was so much interest in the idea that a number itself could be worth money. You know, that I was interviewed in all kinds of languages. I don't even know what languages. I have like a whole archive of videotapes, you know, those big old videotapes of of TV shows where I was interviewed. And there was so much interest in it. Yeah. And let's just look under the hood and talk a little bit about eCash. So I know, I believe that uh, blind signatures were one of the breakthroughs. Yes. uh, Yeah. So can you just explain that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's... You know, uh, there are many kinds of digital signatures. Digital signature is a pretty general uh, term these days in its usage, but uh, we have uh, one type is blind signatures, and I invented them especially for payments and e-cash. Now, actually, I was hoping that they would be used in a whole range of other applications to do with what I call credential mechanisms. And I wrote this paper that appeared in, you know, it was mentioned on the cover of Scientific American. It was also on the cover of the best journal of computer science, CACM at that time. You can see it on my website. There's another one of the little project uh, things there at charm.com. But, you know, I created a whole a concept for how you could use the mixing to have perfect uh, privacy in who you talk to and eCash to make your payments. And then the digital... St- the blind signatures could be used to basically prove things about you without revealing who you are. And so like, you know, classic say of a kid's at a bar and they want to, or somewhere they want to get in, they want to say to prove that they have a, they're old enough or they're, they have a driving license or they're from a different state or whatever, but they don't want to give their address and all this other stuff. Well, that, that's what you could do with a credential mechanism. You could prove exactly that you qualify to according to whatever, you know, to one way, but you wouldn't have to reveal which way that was. You would just reveal the exact one bit that you were qualified. You'd give a signature that would prove that irrefutably. And that was, so that I found a way that basically turned the databases that companies would have about you inside out so that now you maintained your own information about yourself. And whenever they would normally ask their own database a query, they would ask, have to ask you, and you would prove the answer was correct. You'd give the answer and prove it was correct if you wanted to answer it. So that was a whole comprehensive thing. So blind signatures went a little bit beyond. So I was hoping that eCash would be like a Trojan horse, you know. People would start using it for payments, and they'd start to say, hey, wait a minute. I don't have to reveal my identity to make payments. That's pretty, but if I want to, I can prove that that shop got my money. So that's pretty cool. 
maybe I could use that to check out library books or, you know, maybe for these other things. And then it would, the credential mechanism would kind of grow organically. And that's why I went to a tr- lot of effort to publish it in these mainstream publications, to try to really distill it and work with artists to, you know, get the concepts across and, and all that. But so the idea of a blind signature is very, very simple. In those days, we had carbon paper. I don't know if people these days know what carbon paper I know is. What it is. Yeah, we have carbonless carbon paper. I guess you know about that. It copies through. So basically, the the easy way to understand eCash, and it's very close to the reality of it, the, the blind signature is that let's just say I make, I take a piece of paper and I write a random serial number on it that only I know, and I put it in an envelope with some carbon paper inside or carbonless lining or whatever. I give it to my bank and they, and they say, here, it's me, you know, take the money out of my checking account and validate this with your special worth $1 stamp where it's like a signature that they can make. But on the outside of the envelope, they get, they return the envelope to me. Then I can remove the envelope. Now I have my own random serial number with their, the carbon image of their unforgeable worth a dollar stamp on it. So now I have this dollar, but no one knows the serial number. And so I, uh, I'm sure I have the money. And so when I go and I, you know, no one can take it away from me. They can't, you know, screw with my account or anything. So then I take it to a shop and they say, that looks nice, you know, but we got to check that you haven't spent that serial number before. So they check with the bank. That's the, the so-called, you know, what I call the double spending uh, problem in those days, and you hear a lot about it these days, right? And so the the bank would then say, "Oh yeah, that's our signature, but we haven't and we haven't accepted that number before, and so we will honor this and put the money on the shop's account." But of course, we have no idea who the payer is. However, you know the user is very well protected. So I didn't mention this, but that serial number it's actually the result of applying a hash function. So uh, you. If the bank says, oh, we already saw that number, you know, it's not valid, then, then this, the retail, the shop would say, oh, that's interesting. Can you please show me the number that when you hash it gives you that serial number? And of course, they wouldn't be able to do it. So only once they sign and say, okay, we'll accept it, then I give that hash pre-image and then they can, then they know. And then, and so that's, a, it's totally secured in that way. But it's there's a so the, but the privacy is let's say asymmetric, and and I I was very happy with this. And in those days, it really worked well. Uh, you know, the, we had there's something called the Bank for International Settlements, which is the central bankers' uh, central bank. You know, there I visited yeah. and then I spoke there. You know, it's a whole thing. And they promulgated. They set up. They have a publication in those days called you know definition of criminal use of payments, and they listed them, and they were you know, very strident about it all. And it was basically extortion, black markets, and bribery. And so it turns out in any of those scenarios, as the if you used e-cash instead of a suitcase full of $20 bills, right? But if you used e-cash, then no criminals would accept it because since you knew the serial number that you created, you could always kind of tell the bank or the government or something, look out, these guys are going to be spending that or no, so no, no, no blackmailer would take payment by check or, you know, no black markets can accept fed wire or, you know, these things. So it was a, a way to protect the privacy of the individual. And we said unconditionally because the blinding and the blind signature is not just cryptography. It's, it's what we call 
information theoretic statistical security. There, it, it, with unlimited computing power, quantum computers, whatever, you cannot learn anything about uh, what's blinded in there. It's so it's uh, uh, unconditionally uh, protects your as a consumer. Your privacy was uh, and the protection of your money that you held was perfect. But on the other hand, it wasn't really a suitable currency for you know paying bribes to politicians and uh, right. and things like that. So I felt it was a really superior form of money. And in fact, if we could get rid of paper money and switch to this, we could get rid of a lot of uh, corruption and problems, which are, you know, pretty big and deal. Let's also briefly just go over what happened with DigiCash. You did talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, it had offers of investment from places like ING Investment. Um, there was even a plan, I think, for ING Bearings and Goldman Sachs to bring DigiCash to the stock market. And Bill Gates expressed interest in integrating it with Windows 95. Uh, Netscape expressed interest. Visa wanted to invest $40 million. And none of these potential deals happened. And uh, in subsequent reporting, I guess some sources say that you wanted too much control and employees also felt you were too paranoid or greedy or stubborn. And that's why these deals fell through. Well, what, that's, that's, yeah, what's your, you know, that's our great. What's your, yeah, what's your. No, it's, you know, I'm, look, I, I'm doing this to make the world a better place. And that's why I put my life on the line. And that's what I've been working on all along. And, uh, you know, I think it's really true that the powers that be wanted to kind of, you know, stop this from being what it could have been. And I really Wait, want But when you say that, do you mean like, do you mean Microsoft and Visa and Netscape? Or what do you mean by with the powers that be? Because they were interested in, in, you know, using this and integrating it with their businesses or investing in it. Well, I mean, what about like policymakers, regulators, things like that? Uh, I presume. But they, I don't think direction. they were the ones who stopped these deals, were they? Well, I think it's a, it's a, you know, one thing I'd like to say is that it's a, it's a testament to the significance of the ideas that I developed and that there was so much interest. And we had very serious uh, conversations with a number of these uh, organizations. It's true. Um, and, uh, you know, we were represented by investment banks and, you know, uh, and so forth and so on. But if I, if there was ever a scenario in which I felt that the potential of this was going to be, uh, taken forward and used to, to really plant that seed of privacy that I'd hoped for. I, I'd, uh, you know, that was the last thing in the world I'd want to do would be to stop that. So, um, yeah, it, it, when you, when you start to really see the, you know, we're invited into the corridors of, uh, massive power, it's quite an eye opening experience. And, uh, you know, I, I was at the, uh, invited to, I spoke at a conference of central banks in, in, uh, Milan and um, I mean in Rome and um, uh, they told me that you know I mean that was a, the airport was clogged up from Santa it was like their private planes I mean they closed off avenues and we walked uh, across a bunch of streets the police had blocked it all off we walked right into the Vatican you know it was only for us I mean they said no us non central bank had ever been to, even allowed to attend any of their meetings and I, I had me speak there I mean people recognized the significance of what this was but I. I'm not sure that anyone was really interested in the uh, disruptive uh, power of it. Um, yeah. And, uh, and there, you know, and it's not like I had a monopoly on this. As, as Adam mentioned, there were other kinds of blindable signatures that, 
were contorted in a way that they they didn't really fall under our uh, control. So I think that, I mean, this is, you know, I don't want to get too uh, broad a perspective to answer your specific question, but what I would say is that the, I mean, just a little bit more generally, you know, if we want cryptography to rise to its potential to make the world a better place for people, then probably we need to do that in a way that is a more of a works in a more comprehensive manner and is not more or less a guerrilla action on the side. And that's kind of uh, what I've been really trying <laughs> to do. And that, that puts the burden on, on us to figure out how you could really use this uh, in a way that, you know, would address legitimate issues of society and at the same time, you know, liberate people and human potential you know, this is the thing that will take civilization to the next level. Yeah, it's interesting because that description of a guerrilla action on the side is uh, almost a description of Bitcoin. Um, But anyway, no, no, it's not not at all. I wouldn't say that. No, no. I'm I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin changed the whole landscape. Yeah, I would say eCash is Bitcoin zero. Bitcoin one is Bitcoin made a lot of people rich, no question. And Bitcoin two, that's that's coming. You know, and maybe it'll it it needs to be a little more hard to take down and a little more a bit a little bit real privacy and uh maybe integrated with some other features. Yeah, we're so just to give people a sense of the timeline, so you left Digicash in nineteen ninety six, uh Digicash went bankrupt in nineteen ninety eight, and meanwhile, right in the middle there in nineteen ninety seven, Adam sent an email to the Cypherpunk mailing list about Hashcash. So, David, do you want to dispute the what I just said there? I'm sorry, I, 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 Laura. It was, just, I, I, it was a timeline, it, it's right? Such a pleasure of speaking with you, but I'm not sure. Uh, I feel like I'm being cross-examined. Um, that, you know, a lot of what you said has been said. None of it's exactly accurate, and what you said is not exactly accurate. I don't want to be put in a position to criticize any of this, but I mean, uh, no, I mean, if if I don't have the facts, I, I, I didn't leave Digicash in '96. Oh, I don't you know didn't? Okay. No, in '94. I don't know what you're referring to. I mean, the hash cache was just something that Adam developed, as you know, for to protect against spam by using computational cost. And this was something that was already, you know, remember I mentioned the cryptography conferences that I created? So years before Adam's mention of that, it was already, you know, published by Dwork and uh, Noor at the conference. Well, you know, proof the, of work, proof of work. Proof of work right. for preventing spam. So... Yeah, it was already, you know, I was so, I mean, what do you mean that Adam wrote a letter to what? I already knew about this years earlier. I was there when Cynthia presented, you know, Moni Noor was my co-author on the the offline eCash uh, article. Right. So just uh, just for listeners, Cynthia Twork and Moni Noor wrote the uh, proposed proof of work much earlier than Adam uh, wrote yeah. the hash, yeah, proposed yes. hash yes. cash to the cyberpunk mailing list. I'm they, just they making... They, they, were, they presented it at the, the flagship conference. Yeah, I believe they presented conference. it in 1993. Yeah, I, I'm I was just, there. I'm just that trying to make a transition for us to talk about hash cash, that's all, and to show uh, that all of these things were happening right around the same time. That's yes. all. So that's fine. Yeah, yes. no, it's really true. And but I yes, think that's, proof of work. You know, let me say this. I, uh, there were a lot of people, you know, a lot of cypherpunks that I invited 
to visit us and work for us at ECAS. So it was a very open company. We had a research component. So I had a lot of interaction with people like us. Zuku, you know, was uh, there for quite a while. Zuku and I Wilcox worked with him. Yeah. Yeah. To, on, uh, you know, try to help him develop his own competing systems while he was there in my, <laughs> under my employee on my uh, nickel. And, uh, I mean, later, Zuko wrote to me, he wanted to come to crypto. He had no money. I said, sure, I'll pay for you to come. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I picked him up at the airport or whatever it was, uh, you know, help him out. I, I mean, you know, then, and, and right. Nick was there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Nick Sabo. Nick Sabo yes. And, you know, so, it was a so very now, open, uh, now we're going to talk about hash cash. So Adam, in 1997, you sent an email to the cypherpunk mailing list proposing Hashcash. What problem were you trying to solve and how did Hashcash do that? Uh, yeah, so I was running a remailer, so a way to send anonymous email and communicate on Usenet discussion groups uh, with anonymity. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the technology for these things was basically operated by volunteers. So the problem, or one of the problems as an operator of these things, it wasn't that expensive to operate in terms of bandwidth and server resources, but it seemed that some people didn't like free speech or you know ability to communicate privately or anonymously and had taken it upon themselves to spam through, through these systems. And it, it wasn't even commercial spam. It was just you know random numbers, just, just trying to be disruptive and we think, because it was happening to multiple remailers, there were probably about 30 to 50 of them at various times, that, uh, that the people doing this were trying to annoy system administrators who operated Usenet uh, servers. So Usenet is distributed discussion groups, and they use a lot of bandwidth, uh, like a university site or a big ISP. It would use enormous amounts of bandwidth. And so... You know, it, it would start to annoy the system administrators if people were spamming through the remailers. The reaction would be maybe to block remailers or something like that. And I think that was what they were trying to achieve. So it occurred to me that um, it, it would be good if there was a way to combat this spam problem. And because it was involving privacy, I had to think about it in a different way because the usual anti-spam Technique the system administrators. But Adam, can use. I just interrupt you? Yeah. I've, I've heard you give the same presentation before, but I'm just wondering. I mean, but Dwork and Nor had already published proof of work as a as an anti spam mechanism. Sure. So it was this was at the premier conference. Everyone in the field knew about it. It was in published in the Springer lecture notes, and it was in every library, computer science library in the world. Practically, it's very widely disseminated. Yeah. So why did you have to think so deeply about it? Well, I wasn't, there's two, two things here, right? One is... Oh, okay. But I have I, one other I, question for you. I'm sorry. I don't mean yeah. to... I'm, I know you've made some... Look, I value what you were doing, and I know it's tough to operate a remailer in those days. Were there also mix masters? Were those running in those days? And, yeah, and so in the were, real deal, that was right, the large were, anonymity. So because you put yourself in a very difficult position knowing the linkings, right? But if you had cooperated with us in a more open system using the mixing technology, you would have been... Uh, maybe uh, there were there. two generations of remailers. So Hal Finney wrote the first one, which was just a kind of nested onion, but because it didn't standardize the message sizes, you could say that a oh. globally, you know, that, that wasn't very good for uh, passive traffic analysis, if you, if you like. I get you. Uh, yeah, I see. 
I get uh, it. The second generation was uh, Mixmaster. So I was running, actually, it's backwards compatible, but I was running a Mixmaster remailer for a few years. Oh, great. And yeah, and I mean, so in terms of Hashcash, I was not aware of Dwork's paper until somebody sent me a link to the publication a couple of months after I'd uh, posted the source code for yeah. Hashcash. Oh, wow. And so some years later, I got around to kind of writing a paper about the experiences of people using Hashcash for various things. And in there, I cited a number of things, obviously Dwork's paper, as I was aware at that point, but also there were some other related things. I think <clears throat> in, in a way of thinking, the sort of very inventional public key cryptography with Merkle puzzles is, is a kind of proof of, I mean, it's not exactly proof of work, but it's related. That's right? very it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you look around, there's a lot of linkages and reinventions in this space, you know, so there have been other things where uh, people have published something. I've, there were, for example, client puzzles, which was another kind of hash based uh, proof of work by uh, Ari Jules and Brainard, uh, probably also in one of the cryptography papers. And they were not aware of Hashcash, for example, right? So the original Dwork and the Ore was using asymmetric techniques. So there's a lot of reinvention. Of course, I didn't publish it in academic paper. And I, so I just published on a website. So, you know, fair enough, they wouldn't have been aware of it. But just to say that there's a lot of kind of reinvention. And in my experience, the um, building things in an applied way sometimes brings together new ideas, right? So yeah, the, you can have an idea. Necessity is the mother of invention, it. right? Exactly, right. So, so that was the kind of general uh, thrust of it. So and I have, uh, you know, done general publications and things, but more in the uh, distributed system space. So because it was a kind of applied thing for remailers, I just put it on a, you know, like a tech report on a website kind of thing. So anyway. Yeah, and, um, oh, go yeah, go ahead, finish. Yeah, so I mean, the the idea there was to to think about it in a way that could preserve privacy. So there are a few features about it that are privacy related. So it adds, uh, it has a timestamp, but there's some randomization of the timestamp so that you wouldn't reveal, in, you know, from a black box. If you're looking at it from the outside, see when the messages are going in, you wouldn't reveal who's likely sender by looking at the timestamp. So it had some features like that. So I mean, just the idea is to, as the same as Dwarks in in the kind of concept level, which is to to create cost. Right? That's the basic observation, right? That the problem with commercial bulk spam is it costs effectively zero. But I think the advantage of that kind of system is that it doesn't, you know, it's it's not as attractive because it's not respendable, but it's uh, it's more scalable. It doesn't require any infrastructure really. You can just attach it to an email. And actually, much later in uh, 2004, Hal Finney kind of got a bit closer to uh, assembling these different parts together. So he used Hashcash as the uh, proof of work, and he used a Chorm uh, blind signature-based token server, and he assembled it in an IBM tamper-resistant secure processor that he ran. So it, had the, it kind of had the central point of failure risk, but, the, but he introduced mining effectively into the conversation. So he was using Hashcash. So I guess it was a, you, you can find a website online somewhere. Somebody's archived it. So basically, you would do some work. You would send it to this IBM processor that was running in his server, and it would send you back a Chorm token. And because of the 
kind of trustworthy computing aspect of this card. If you assumed that that he wasn't colluding with IBM, which would be a you know a big stretch to say that they you know they designed this card, <laughs> they colluded with him, right? So it's it's a it's a serious piece of hardware that banks buy, and it can provide a kind of signature of execution. So you get you, know, you can verify what code it's running with reasonable security, not not as much as the Bitcoin network because that's you know anybody can fully verify and you don't depend on this kind of you know trusted hardware uh, sequence. But nevertheless, it's kind of interesting assemblage of, of parts. So you could call that kind of Bitcoin uh, zero point five, if you like, in the uh, you know the Bitcoin zero without a proof of work. <laughs> he's kind of, well, he's got yeah. proof of work in there, and he's and he's bridging the technologies, right? So it's it's centralized. It's got the strong privacy because you get in exchange for your work a Chorn token, and the scarcity is there. So it's introducing digital scarcity. And I think that Hal Finney and Nick Zarpo and a few people were uh, more interested in monetary reforms. So, you know, return to a gold standard or reestablishing something like that. So people were looking at the electronic cash uh, problem from different directions, you know, some from monetary reform perspective, some from a privacy perspective. I was a little bit more on the kind of privacy bearer cash perspective. I would have been okay with, you know, dollars or any, any reasonably stable currency. But then Bitcoin, you know, if you scroll forward to Bitcoin, it, you know, it loses some of the privacy, but it does plus or minus what Hal Finney's, he, he called it RPAL, reasonable proof of work. So it basically does that, but in a distributed setting, and the privacy it loses is, is a side effect. I think, you know, most people who were involved would like to establish a way to, to bring that back, but it's more te- technically challenging to do that, as David would you know, have a lot of experience in protocol design around to, to do that in a way, you, know, you, you end up with bigger zero-knowledge proofs and more cryptographic assumptions. So Bitcoin is using actually quite basic cryptographic assumptions. So it doesn't really do anything you know, advanced with zero-knowledge proofs and things like that. And so for both of you, when did you hear about Bitcoin and how, and what were your initial thoughts? So do you want, do you want to go, David? Uh, well, you know, I, I'd rather not comment on that exactly. Uh, I, I don't think I've done so publicly. Uh, can I, we just go back before we ask, answer that often asked question? Because I think it's a very interesting conversation uh, about, you know, these early days. And, you know, one of the things that's colored my thinking, Adam, on this, and I, I don't know, I'm curious on your thoughts on this, but was really, you know, in the, in the mid-90s, the, as I think you've pointed out, the computing power and the network connections and all this, but you know, wasn't really up to doing a lot of stuff. And the idea that, you know, you'd have all these servers running all around the world, you know, supporting payments. I think that was somewhat inconceivable to us. We were, we were happy that we could get the client side, you know, to just make a payment in a couple minutes, do an e-cash payment, and that we could get the servers to be able to handle their side of it. Uh, so instead of having, you know, replicating that server, so to speak, many times, but what we did consider, and I think it's not, I don't believe it's ever been discussed publicly, but several of us in the DigiCash company uh, were working on a more distributed version of, of eCash that was not, you know, it was somewhere in between. So it was, uh, I mean, you can think it's very easy to uh, imagine distributing eCash in a simple-minded way, right? Where you say, well, we've got, you know, 10 servers now. 
And if a majority of them agree that it has, you know, they all sign and then they all uh, check the double spending. And if a majority say it's okay, then it's okay. You know, if you were to combine that with, you know, what I published as my dissertation at Berkeley, right, which was a bl- the blockchain, everything about blockchain except for the proof of work part, right? Uh, then you, you, you know, because that was a majority rule network, right? So that's kind yeah. of what we were thinking of as a, as a step to distribute this uh, process because there, was, there wasn't really the resource to just, uh, I don't think, uh, you know, uh, at that point. So that would, be, would have been something that would have been uh, achievable to make a somewhat more decentralized, you know, more in the uh, classic BFT kind of uh, model. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think. I never heard anyone are... talk about it. We didn't. That's, our, that's on us, I guess. No, yeah. So we, um, I think Greg Maxwell had a look at doing that as well. Uh, so just just to kind of make a threshold, you know, like K of N. Yeah. Yeah, uh, signers, and you you can see in a straightforward way that that would I mean that should that should work. You know, if you can do a single single blind signature, you can make K of N inefficiently, maybe more efficiently with some more thought. And I think state chains, which is another kind of Bitcoin layer two, is contemplating doing the same thing. The the I think Greg had some source code, but hadn't published it for the uh, kind of threshold blind signature approach. But I think the the challenge, and, and Blockstream actually has a kind of federated blockchain, which is also K of N, so it kind of fits into our thinking for a layer two security. But the, the advantage for Bitcoin itself in the layer one is it's a kind of, uh, we, we published a paper on sidechains and, and coined the word uh, dynamic membership signature because you could think of the proof of work as sort of evolving and signing in some way with the work, the, you know, the, the most work, the longest chain with the most work, signing off, the majority of the work signing off. And you know, each signature or each edition of a proof of work, you can have a freshly anonymous participant. So I think Bitcoin stumbled across, I and mean, nobody knows who Satoshi is or how he hit upon this idea, you know, whether he came at it from the Byzantine General's uh, fixed membership uh, BFT protocols, or whether he started, you know, straight from anonymous proof of work, but it it doesn't have the membership challenge, and and something right. with a membership is no, never I, quite I, I, as I, permissionless. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. No, that was the so that's, that's the big yeah. breakthrough of of exactly, of, yeah. of, of Bitcoin, and thank God that it happened, and yeah. it's a fantastic, you know, it's changed the world in a dramatic way, and. So, yeah, so yeah. let's let's talk about Bitcoin because we're well over time and we're running out. So, um, yeah, just how did you learn about Bitcoin? When was that and what were your initial thoughts? Uh, so I learned about it in, I think it was like August 2008. got an email from Satoshi Nakamoto with you know, the abstracts and asking for the correct citation for Hashcash. And I sent him a couple of other papers to look at, one of them being B-Money. And I looked at it in more detail, actually, well, when Hal Finney started posting his experiences running it and, uh, you know, understanding how it works. So he, he posted some longer commentary on, I think, the cryptography mailing list or the Cypherpunks mailing list. You know, I suppose for somebody who's you know spent much of his 
professional career working on applied cryptography, you know, like libraries and privacy-enhanced technologies and things, the thing that will strike you initially until you become accustomed to it is, well, that's, that hasn't got very strong privacy assurances, at least compared to the previous systems, and that the security margin on a double spending is kind of 50-50, right? So you're, you're sort of trusting that the, the economic majority is honest to some extent. Not, not in all. It depends on the aspects of the system you're protecting. And so you know, from the normal cryptographic kind of asymmetric crypto, you typically have an enormous benefit as a defender versus the attacker. You know, you're going to do some computation that takes a fraction of a second. The attacker is going to sit there for you know, thousands of years with using an enormous amount of compute and probably going to fail to decrypt your message. So you're used to this kind of enormous asymmetry. And Bitcoin is like, well, it's, you know, it's the good guys versus the bad guys. It's the fair fight kind of thing, right? So <laughs> it takes you a while to get, to get over that. But, you know, then you reflect on it. You say, well, you know, on the other hand, it has proposed a novel new solution to the kind of dynamic membership of Zantan General's, like, problem space. And as I mentioned, I was somebody who'd read Leslie Lamport's uh, paper while I was doing my computer science PhD. There's something interesting and new in that space. And it's here, it's bootstrapped, you know, after, after a while it had a value and so forth when there were exchanges, I guess, over a year in before there was a price at all, right? It's just people playing with it to start with. The bootstrap story is kind of interesting, but, you know, the fact that it's deployed and it's decentralized, so there's no really identifiable nexus of, you know, a company or an individual that you would ask to switch off a server or, you know, block something, so... I think it's an interesting trade-off, right? Because with a DigiCash and related blind signature-based protocols, you've got a very strong assurance that you can't selectively block transactions. And the only thing that uh, a party operating it could do is shut down, right? They could say, well, I refuse. I mean, I can't block anything selectively, so what do you want me to do, right? They're all indistinguishable to me, assuming that the, the sender wants privacy. Whereas Bitcoin is not, not so much in that vein. It's more that, you know, people are transacting, there's sort of pseudonymity, the, the coins are kind of pseudonymous, there's no kind of wallet, identifier, tracking it all. It's kind of imperfect, but there's a de facto fungibility and privacy and an assumption that there's an economic incentive that sooner or later, some miner somewhere will process your transaction, even if the first one chooses not to for policy reasons. And that's like plus or minus hold up. It's a bit of a gray area, you know, there are, the companies that specialize in tracking coins that have been stolen. So those ones are kind of a bit gray, but you know, some of them move once in a while in small numbers. And there are mixes in the network doing kind of coin mixes or coin joins and things like that. So it's an interesting system in which to try and deploy privacy improvements. So, you know, the Lightning Network, which is another layer two, has some mix like onion routing technology and uh, the, the layer one uh, coin joins and liquid, which is a layer two that my company Blockstream is uh, working on, has confidential transactions. So a different kind of privacy, not sort of linkability privacy, but privacy of the amount of value being transferred. And David, what about you? Just briefly, we're going to move on to some other questions in a moment. <laughs> like I said, uh, you know, I was pretty familiar with all the different aspects of it. So uh, I don't really. Uh, comment on that, but uh, what I what I could say would uh, I'd like to say I think is that I mean to Adam's point, yeah, the, you know I think there are now 
the technology is out there, both on the bad guy side because of the quantum computers and all this possibly percolating. And then, um, you know, some of the new stuff that has been done to speed up mixing by pre-computation very dramatically and to make real quantum secure BFT, uh, you know, those things uh, can come together and create something that has all the, 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 the real goodness. It's more, much, much more definitive, a far higher uh, barrier against being taken down uh, and even by a national adversary. And the privacy, then you get the full anonymity sets. Uh, and, you know, you might have also privacy in the messaging, uh, who talks to who, that's a, that's a great thing. So I think there's a whole, there's another shoe to drop in this space. And, but, you know, I'm the, I, I would never want to be thought of as someone diminishing uh, the significance of Bitcoin. I mean, to me, that is like this game-changing, uh, world-changing thing. And it's, uh, as you know, technologically, it's quite a complex beast. But, and I think it's showing, it's pointing the way to, you know, different things that we could try to improve. And I, I, and I appreciate the way you're, you're tackling it, Adam. It's like, uh, you know, trying to uh, add things onto it to make it better. And I think that that's, that's promising. And, but one could also, you know, take it all to the next level. And that's something that uh, I think is also, uh, you know, Laura, your viewers should, you know, keep their eyes open for something uh, really dramatically uh, different. You know, I think there's, there's another, there's, there's room there to really take it to the next level. So, uh, yeah. So Bitcoin has gone from a value of nothing, basically, to currently having a market cap of over $200 billion. And meanwhile, we have this pandemic going on, which is causing this economic freeze that has led to governments printing more money. And there's all kinds of other factors going on, like China launching its own digital currency and these other central banks, you know, eyeing the same idea. So when you look at these different forces, where do you think Bitcoin is headed next? <laughs> to the stratosphere? As Adam, did you recently say $300,000? Yeah, I mean, actually, there's been some recent discussion on a different track, which is this uh, stock-to-flow model, which is a kind of um, just a curve fit on previous year's price movement, but actually I'd be, the 300,000 comment was before, which was just, um, you know, you got, you can't make predictions about these things, but just looking at the use case and the similarity with digital gold. So I was just looking at, well, you know, go look up the metrics. Well, how much gold is there in the world? And people are not exactly sure how much physical gold there is in the world, but they have a rough idea. And, you know, so what's the market cap of gold and divide that by the eventual supply of Bitcoin, and you come out with a number that's like 300 to 500,000 per coin, but then that depends on the gold price, which is also the moving target. And of course, with all this pandemic, economic uncertainty, gold is typically a kind of macro hedge, so gold price is up, surprise, surprise. But, uh, you know, Bitcoin price is up too. And I have to suppose that while a lot of people have heard about Bitcoin, there's probably, you know, many people who haven't taken the plunge. Bitcoin has differences to gold. You know, you can send it at a distance. You can verify it. It has a lot, a lot of sort of more transactional value, a utility value, I guess. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I think it's it's certainly a very interesting experience to, you know, send 
from Bitcoin. I think, you know, in our company, we sent a Bitcoin transaction, I don't know, like $100,000 or something. It involves multiple people, you know, decrypting and signing different things. And you end up with a small blob of text and you're like, wow, this is, you know, $100,000 of bearer money. It's just an amazing phenomena, right, to, to contemplate. As, a, as somebody from a computer science background, that's really a, a very interesting artifact for the world. So, you know, as technologists, we're very enamored by, you know, the potential of this building block, I think, um, and what it, what it can do for society to have, you know, the kind of uh, dependable electronic money from a monetary reform perspective. Now, of course, the, it seems that the economic commentators are saying that even though there's been a lot of money printing, it hasn't translated into much price inflation yet. Obviously, there's, you know, there's more money in the system, but the economic downturn has suppressed price inflation. People are not spending money. And so the uh, suppliers are having to you know, coax people to buy things by reducing prices to what they would do in a robust economic situation if you printed this quantity of money. So we don't know if and when that will take effect. I think the experience in Japan has shown that countries can have, you know, low inflation rates for a very long period of time. So, you know, some people are looking at the US, for example, uh, as a major economic factor in the world to say that might be in the future. But uh, I think more recently, the US has even said that it has a, an economic, is considering an economic policy of creating or targeting the creation of price inflation. So I don't know. It's uh, We live in interesting times, I guess, is the thing we can say there. <laughs> yeah. And just for listeners who don't know, I have mentioned this before on the show, but stock to flow is this ratio of the existing supply versus the new supply. So for instance, with Bitcoin, um, you know, it's relatively small, but actually it's still greater than the ratio for gold. Um, but after the next halving, it will actually drop below that of gold. Um, however, one interesting thing is that somebody um, took that and applied it to the price of gold over the course of history, and there was not a correlation. So then they felt that that disproved the stock to flow theory. So we will see how this bears out. Um, you know, I'm not sure uh, whether or not that will apply to Bitcoin. Um, but David, what about you? Where do you think this is all headed? Well, I, 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 I'm extremely optimistic about the you know, the future, I mean, all the trends that you mentioned, Laura, seem to indicate that, uh, you know, I mean, if, if you're afraid to go places in person, you want something you can transact with uh, online. And, you know, these, there's a ton of, uh, of uh, crazy stuff going on with governments, uh, you know, uh, these days. So uh, it, it, it must all be pointing in a very positive direction, but we're not seeing it right now that dramatically because, you know, as, as was said, we're not, people aren't really spending that much. So uh, I think it's, yeah, this, it, this bodes extremely well for the whole space, uh, Bitcoin uh, especially. And um, yeah, so I, it's, this is, uh, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a sad to have to, I mean, I'd rather not think that something that I care about, like Bitcoin is, is going to benefit from, you know, all these bad things that are happening to the planet. But uh, in fact, yeah, I think it, 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 it seems that it will really, uh, uh, yeah, it's just all should be very positive for it. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also, yeah. I'm rooting for the planet. Though, too, you know? Yes. <laughs> I'm really, I think we I'm, all are. <laughs> Isn't that, and for humanity. So we can all go yeah. out and 
hang out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, so well, get ethereal next, next time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been so fun chatting and um, I really enjoyed learning about your uh, early work in digital currencies pre Bitcoin. That was very fun. Where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Well, I would like to suggest people also could look at the XX network. You know, we, we're live in beta and we've got a lot of good stuff uh, running and it's a, look at the white papers. It's, it's really solid stuff. I'm extremely, uh, it's best stuff out there by far. I think I'm very ex- extremely enthusiastic about it and we've got a lot of good backing. So, uh, please, yeah, have a look at that. And, uh, but if you want to know about the historical stuff, look at, at charm.com and uh, look at the eCash Museum and, different other things, multi-party computation we didn't get a chance to talk about. That's another interesting uh, vector uh, uh, on all this, like kind of generalizing the smart contracts and, and the ICR and the history of it. And if you're interested in all that, so it's all up there. And uh, I guess the one aspect that I would like to also draw your attention to is, you know, this kind of cryptographic technology can also be used in elections and voting and online voting and so on. And that is a very much related to you know, to to payments and uh, and messaging, and I think this is a an area where I'd like to see a lot more. Uh, I think there's a lot of potential there, and so I've, I've been pushing, working on that for for a long time. And you can read about some of the stuff up on my site uh, that I've been doing on that. So we're we're making great strides in that. Actually, uh, there will be some new work coming out very soon. So uh, yeah, charm.com and XX Network, XX Network is the URL. Yeah. All right, and Adam? So I have a personal webpage on cypherspace.org, C-Y-P-H-E-R-S-P-A-C-E.org, which has, for example, uh, pictures of the T-shirt that you mentioned and various cryptographic libraries and things I've implemented over the years. And on Twitter, I'm Adam3US, and Blockstream, which is the company I co-founded some years ago now, is uh, blockstream.com. I think, you know, we were talking about the um, Dwork proof of work in Hashcash. So I think that's been something that's, uh, there's been discussions about various times. And so one kind of question I turn my mind to as well, you know, is there, you know, why are people using Hashcash for the proof of work and not other proofs of work, right? So, you know, there's the client puzzles that uh, Jules and Brainard produced. There's the Original proof of work by uh, Dwork and Eor. Oh, I and see. So the, mecha- the hash cache mechanism itself is the one that's prevailed. Yes. Well, I think there's okay, well, there's a specific reason in hindsight. So at the time I did it, it wasn't used for that purpose. It was just used for one one use stamps. But the the result is that you get a compact proof of work because it's fixed size. Whereas the Dwork and the Orls were like broken asymmetric signatures. So signatures were low key sizes so that you could brute force them and create forgeries and things like that. So there's, there's three variants. Um, two of the variants have progress. So you need like a Poisson process for fairness, like a level playing field in the crypto mining. The third one, which is based on, in, in Dwork and the Orl, is based on uh, this square roots in large prime fields. And there's an algorithm in that called Tonelli Shanks, which has some randomness, but it's not clear if that's sufficient to have a level playing field because there may be other slightly less optimal square root algorithms that the single fastest computer can tend to win. And that would be a problem again. And then the other side effect is that 
those systems have, they're not as easy to scale in terms of the difficulty. So with Hashcash, the, the stamp was, you know, uh, compute a million tries. So, you know, uh, uh, 20 binary digits of zero at the front. But these days it's enormous, right? It's 70, 80 leading zeros. And so if you scale some of those kind of broken signature-based schemes, you end up having to increase the prime size or the feature transform size, and you get an enormous uh, proof. So the proof of work might itself be bigger than the block of transactions you're trying to prove about, plus the fact that they're not Poisson is like a stumbling block, if you see what I mean. So anyway, this is sort of like in hindsight, so it's, good curi- it's like a curiosity, right? So, well, you know, given that there were these parallel different variants, and, and the, the, the other one by Jules and Brainard is actually interactive. So it's not, you know, it's a proof with respect to a server. So that's not amenable to, uh, you know, independent verification, let's say, to the audit function. So anyway. I'm really glad we had a chance to speak about it. Thanks. That's so interesting. Yeah. And so you, you, uh, I'm, I'm now I'm glad to hear that the approach that you took is really, really, uh, it turns out to be the superior one. And uh, congratulations on that. That's excellent. I'm going to mention that going forward. I, I was unclear. I was looking forward to this chance to, you know, we've met before, but I'd never, I wanted to ask you about this because I thought it was going to come up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, um, I think it's also, you know, very simple. So simple things win. So when I was designing it, I was thinking about, you know, should I introduce floating point to make it harder to make an ASIC? You know, it's already, I was thinking about spanners are very determined economically. They'll make ASICs. So should I make it complicated? Should I involve memory? I looked at time memory trade-offs. I looked at. I was like, you know what? I think simple is better. <laughs> so so I like kept it to you know a standard SHA one function at the time. So you'd be able to verify it even with a shell script using a SHA one function, right? So so anyway, simple wins, and it and it happened to have the Poisson function, which I was actually determinedly trying to eradicate because it was a nuisance for spam purposes, but turned out to be an advantage for uh, distributed. Venice or something like that. Uh, all right. Anyway, well, I, you know, I'm not going to even try to pretend to translate all that for my listeners, but hopefully the more technical ones will have understood. And um, at least now we have an understanding of why your proof of work was perhaps more widely used than the original version. Um, okay. Well, this has been so fun chatting with you both. Thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Okay, thank you, Laura. This was great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you again. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the history of digital currency and David and Adam, as well as their various inventions, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. 